This is How to Read. I'm Milan. And I'm Olivia, the producer of this episode. Today we're talking with Nelson Flores, a scholar of education with a focus on language, bilingualism, and race. This episode is about language and injustice in the classroom. What we notice about someone else's language is less to do with the language itself than with our perception of the person's social status. This happens with kids in classrooms too, where teachers police the language of students with lower social status, while students with higher social status can say the exact same thing and nobody notices. This double standard can lead to Black students and bilingual students of color in particular being put into remedial classes that aren't right for them, preventing them from progressing academically. Nelson Flores wants an education system, and a world, that does justice to the many valid ways people use language. Nelson Flores, welcome. Thank you. So we are going to be talking about language and injustice in the classroom. Um, And so I understand that a lot of your work is about actually going into classrooms and observing what goes on there. Um, And, you know, when we think about language, like the language learning that goes on in classrooms, um, you know, I'm curious, like, is the point of language teaching in classrooms to make everyone speak the same way? Is that what their aim should be? Is that what their aim is? Well, I think what's interesting to think about is what do we call language classrooms? We usually call them language arts, right? Um, And so if everyone is doing the same exact thing, that's not really art, right? Art is by definition an individual creative process where you're exploring the human experience. So I think what should be happening in a language arts classroom is art, is creativity, Unfortunately, that's not oftentimes what happens in classrooms that are called language arts because of this expectation that everyone should be using language in the same exact way. That's interesting because I think I, I, I know people who can get very kind of worked up about like spelling or like, you know, using the right verb forms and things. And if I'm understanding you correctly, like that's not actually like what language is. That's something that kind of schools and the education system has created around language. That's not language itself. Exactly. That's not language itself. Now, certainly people as part of their socialization into communities are socialized into conventions of those communities. Um, So those conventions may be different depending on who you are, your background, the communities that you're socialized into. But to turn it into a set of rules that people are expected to follow and to turn it into things that are correct and incorrect really, I think, takes the life out of language. Yeah. And so can you say a little bit more about what you mean by like being socialized into a language within a community? Like, is the idea there that actually sort of you, it's not through like schools and like grammar, like textbooks that people are learning language, it's through like social life, like the, you know, speaking with your parents when you're like a child or like speaking with friends and family. And like, is that what being socialized into language is about? 
Yes, exactly. So our primary socialization into our language is our family and our community. Um, and because we have a diverse society, people are socialized into different conventions and different communities. One concrete example is, for example, the African-American community. Um, there's been extensive research that looks at the conventions of African-American English and show that this is not broken English. It's not English that has no conventions. It's not English that's somehow just slang. There are conventions that African-Americans are socialized into in their uses of English um, that are different than the conventions of other communities. Um, but all communities have conventions that they're socializing people into. Got it. So it's the idea, maybe like, there is one correct way of doing this thing, and we're going to teach you how, um, when actually what you were saying is like, there are different conventions within different communities. Um, so there's not just like a single skill that can be taught and that is kind of like the only correct way. Correct. It leads to a dynamic in classrooms where teachers, whether they want to or not, have to police the language of their students, right? Because it has, they, they have to determine whether what their students did is correct or incorrect. Mm. Can you give an example? Okay, just can you tell us a bit more about your observations in actual classrooms? Like, can you tell us a bit about this, the schools that you were at? And, you know, maybe give us an example of where you observed a teacher policing a student's language and just kind of what was going on there? So the most textbook example that I like to give from my own research is a very simple one. Um, it's the linguistic token, yeah. So Y-E-H or Y-E-A-H, yeah, right. Um, it's yeah, I've probably token. said yeah already several times this episode. Exactly, which is helping me to prove the point um, that I'm going to make. Um, it's a linguistic token that I see heavily policed in the schools that I work with. So um, this phrase linguistic token, can you just explain what you mean by that? So a linguistic token is just what linguists use to describe use of language. Okay. So it's really, it's about the language in use as opposed to kind of like the word yeah in the abstract. It's like the word yeah when it's used by a person. Correct. Yes. Great. So the schools that I work with are primarily low-income students of color, um, primarily um, Latinx students. Um, and it's a, so I see teachers oftentimes correcting students when they say something like, yeah, um, and they'll say something like, what did you mean? Or what's the word? Or something to that effect that kind of primes the student for, oh, wait, I'm supposed to say yes. Um, but as you were alluding to, and as I have seen in my own experience, I began to document how often I heard the term yeah used at the University of Pennsylvania, where I work, where all of my colleagues have doctorates, right? Um, and so I had to stop documenting how often I heard the term yeah after like an hour, because it was literally <laughs> pervasive in all of my interactions with all of my colleagues. Hmm. Yeah, so <laughs> it's funny, I can't stop saying the word yeah now, I've become like hyper, <laughs> hyper aware of it. Um, <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, but so what I'm getting from that is is like it, we're not even talking here about variation across different language communities, um, but literally the same single word can there's there's a double standard right like there's a double standard for some people it's like policed in a really aggressive way for other people it's it's not even noticed right and i think that that's also true for features that are are oftentimes associated with african-american english which i was talking about previous in the interview where if you look on tiktok if you look on social media in general there are many white people who use features that are typically associated with African-American English. And if anything, they may be understood to be maybe hip or cool or maybe approachable and down to earth. But those same linguistic features, when they're used by African-Americans in classrooms, are oftentimes corrected. And so the same linguistic tokens can be perceived quite differently based on the social status of the person who's using those linguistic tokens. So, so yeah, I mean, I, I think I'm, I'm starting to get a sense of the various kinds of injustice that are involved in um, these kind of, these double standards, these different ways that people are judged based on their social status, um, based on kind of social categories. Um, and you mentioned that that the schools that you observe in um, have predominantly Latinx students. So um, I know that not all Latinx students speak languages other than English, but I imagine that some of them do. And so I'm curious how students that are speaking bring multiple languages into the classroom, how that plays into this um, this question of kind of whose language gets policed and why? Well, I think the same point that I was um, talking about in terms of English and different, the same linguistic token being perceived differently based on the social status of the uh, particular user is also true with bilingualism, especially in the US. So I think probably in other contexts as well, where bilingualism is seen as something valuable for people who have higher social status, it's seen as a possible barrier to learning for those with low social status. And actually, to, br to bring in an example from the UK, um, a few years ago, um, there were all of these articles that came out about Princess Charlotte being bilingual. And okay, this is one of the children of, of um, William and Kate, is that like? Yeah. Yes, yes, yes. Um, okay. And so all of these articles came out, uh, like maybe in 2018, that were talking about the fact that she had she was bilingual because I believe her nanny was Spanish speaking, and so she grew up speaking both English and Spanish, which is of course great, but the way that they described her was like she was the first child to ever <laughs> have grown up with multiple languages, and there was yeah. one headline that really that really stuck with me, that said Princess Charlotte is is just starting nursery, and she can already speak two languages. Now, I work with many children who, when they start nursery and speak two languages, they're put into remediation. And so bilingualism is seen as something that's celebrated 
for affluent people like Princess Charlotte. And, and I mean no disrespect to Princess Charlotte. I think it's great that she speaks multiple languages. I just think the problem is that other children who have the same exact skills aren't perceived in the same way because of their social status. Yeah, no, that's, I mean, yeah, that's a real kind of unequal treatment. Um, and so, yeah, how, how do you see that playing out in some of the classrooms that you work in? Like what these, these young children that speak English and Spanish, um, you know, besides just being put in these remedial groups, like what actually kind of happens like day to day, moment to moment with their language? So children already come to school at a very young age with an understanding that language is a tool. But then they're taught in school that language is a set of rules that they need to follow. And so what happens is that it turns them off. Why would you want to learn something from someone who's telling you that the way that you use language is wrong? And so there's this huge disconnect between how students are using language in their community, how they're expected to use language in school, and this inability on the part of many teachers to make connections. Yeah, because it's, I mean, it sounds to me like there's actually maybe that bilingual children, bilingual students, like they have uh, additional capacities in their language use that come from like switching between languages and that they're doing that every day, and that that is something that like is not acknowledged by schools as being kind of like worthy and you know valuable, but also then they're being kind of it's being counteracted because they're being taught like okay you should only be using one language at a time and like right now it's only English. Right. So so first I would say so all of us are crossing socially constructed linguistic borders all of the time. Wait, wait, wait. We're all crossing socially constructed linguistic borders. So 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 the borders between different varieties of languages that are different social groups, we're kind of crossing them in our daily lives. Well, right. right. So I mean we're kind of crossing so for example, if we did a discourse analysis of this interview right now, I'm assuming that you would notice the use of kind of more formal linguistic features, more informal linguistic features. Um, you might notice some different registers being used, some that are maybe more academic, some that are more colloquial. Um, but what happens with the children that I work with is that their crossing of these socially constructed linguistic borders is marked in ways that our crossing of linguistic borders in this podcast is not, right? It's marked as somehow deviant or different from how normal human beings use language. Um, and so then it needs to be fixed, right? It needs to be corrected. So, I mean, one, one takeaway that I'm getting from this episode that maybe is also something for listeners to take away is, um, you know, that, that when we notice people come, you know, mixing different styles or, or crossing these, these, um, socially constructed linguistic borders that, we should be, you know, not so quick to judge. Um, well, can I just can I just add there? I would say that we should also be aware that we're doing it too, even if we're not noticing that we're doing it. So right. we're perceiving it in somebody else, but not perceiving it in ourselves. It may be an issue of social status um, <laughs> that we need to reflect on. 
but it might be your own bias that's kind of shaping your perception that you might want to critically reflect on. Mm. Yeah. I mean, this conversation definitely has made me feel like being conscious about language and the kind of the social status and the social judgments involved is definitely something important to do. Well, Nelson Flores, thank you very much. Sure. Thank you. Thanks for having me. That's it for this episode. For links to books mentioned in our discussion, plus further reading, visit our website, howtoreadpodcast.com. You can also listen to a bonus clip in which Nelson discusses his own experiences of being judged for his language and how this led to his current research. To hear about our latest episodes and news, follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at HowToReadNow. This episode was produced by me, Milan Talunen, and by me, Olivia Branscombe, with editorial assistance from me, Eleanor Roth Hessen, from me, Monsi Garnani, and from me, Abby Rooney. Our theme music is by Poddington Bear. Special thanks to Columbia University for its support, and thank you for listening. 